Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Duvini. I'm the lead pastor at Asbury. Thanks for joining us, and we hope this episode will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and just maybe entertain you a little bit as you go. So I have told you, if you were here on Sunday, that because I'm going to spend the next couple of weeks preaching on stewardship rather than preaching through the one-year Bible, uh, that the the weekly podcasts are going to cover a bit more material than I normally would do. I, I, I normally try and just focus on either the Old or New Testament, depending on what I'm preaching about on Sundays, but, but this week I'm going to give you a bit of both. Now, now, fortunately for me, I've already preached on the book of Jeremiah, which is the Old Testament book you're reading in, um, which means I don't necessarily need to uh, go into great detail about it, but I will give you some information. Uh, maybe you weren't here those Sundays. Maybe you just weren't paying attention. Uh, I know some of you can be forgetful. I am turning pages here. Um, <clears throat> so Jeremiah. Now Jeremiah the prophet lived about a century after Isaiah did. So this is a, a much later text. Isaiah you know, would have been preaching about the danger of the Assyrian kingdom. <coughs> and there's maybe... Uh, you know, there's issues with Judah facing down the Assyrians, and he deals with that in the first part of the book and uh, predicts the exile well in advance. But Jeremiah is going to live through the exile. Um, so by the time Jeremiah is on the scene, um, the northern kingdom of Israel is gone, just completely annihilated by the Assyrians. And that won't factor too much into Jeremiah, but it is an important uh, it is an important historical event in terms of how it shapes the people of Israel. There's not really a comparable event in American history. Uh, and you're going to read some other prophets, like when you read the book of Amos. You know, Amos is a prophet living in the northern kingdom, prophesying to the northern kingdom about their impending doom. And it would be kind of like someone wandering through the Twin Towers on September 10th, 2001, trying to warn people not to go into work tomorrow because it's all going to be destroyed. Uh, and that's, that's the prophet Amos when you get to that book. Um, but the it, it's an odd mix because when the northern kingdom is destroyed, it is a catastrophic, cataclysmic event. Those people are just gone. I mean, the ones who survive the invasion are literally, they are forcibly relocated elsewhere. And colonists from the Assyrian Empire are moved in. Um, and the world in which Jeremiah is prophesying to, it's just this tiny little kingdom of Judah now. Um, and the world he is living in is profoundly unstable. The Assyrian Empire is falling apart by Jeremiah's lifetime. So this great and mighty power that had annihilated the northern kingdom is crumbling. And you might think at first that that seems like it's cause for celebration. Like they're evil. They're, they're terrible. And, and, you know, they're not just evil like within the biblical narrative. I mean, they were just horrible. They were profoundly cruel to the people they conquered. Um, which is precisely why 
they're crumbling by the time Jeremiah's around because the people they've conquered have been rebelling against them. And these powerful forces at the edges of their empire are working together to conquer them. The Babylonians and a group of people who are called the Medes, who are, are not quite the same thing as the Persians, but they're a, a related people group, uh, as well as um, these sort of armies of nomadic people living on the steppes of Central Asia who are kind of like the ancestors to what will one day become the Mongols. Um, they all sort of work together to take down the Assyrian Empire. So Assyria has fallen. Egypt is weak. Egypt would have been the other major international superpower of their day. Uh, the sort of balancing force to cancel out the power of Assyria. And the problem is, by the time Assyria begins to collapse, the Assyrians have actually subjugated Egypt on a couple of different occasions. So Egypt is weak, Assyria is falling apart, and Babylon is on the rise. The entire global balance of power is shifting, and small little nations like Judah aren't totally sure what to do. Uh, they can't stand up to Babylon on their own. They are nowhere near strong enough to do that. Uh, but they also don't really want to be ruled by Babylon. Um, Babylon's not going to be a whole lot kinder to the people it conquers than the Assyrians were. And actually, part of Jeremiah's message is going to be that God is commanding them to submit to Babylon. Because this is God's judgment on them for their sin. He's commanding them to submit to Babylon. Now here's what's really important in terms of historical background. The way this works in the ancient world, if a powerful kingdom is coming for you and you submit, you just surrender, probably actually going to go pretty well for you if that happened. People don't like to fight wars in this day and age if they can avoid it. For one thing, um, generally speaking, there are no professional soldiers. Assyria kind of had that, but Babylon won't. Um, most of the people who do your fighting are not full-time soldiers. The only full-time soldiers are going to be like the king's official bodyguard which means your armies are people who you actually need in the fields at home, growing crops and raising livestock and doing other things that they do. So wars are not just expensive because you have to pay the people fighting them, but because if, this, if men are out fighting war, no one's tending to the crops. So, so war is a dangerous and risky enterprise. No one wants to fight wars. Babylon doesn't want to fight a war. So if these smaller kingdoms that they want to control will just submit to them, great. They'll leave your king in charge. They won't mess with your religions. They won't mess with your people. All you'll really have to do is pay them tribute. So you, you send them a certain amount of gold every year, and you're okay. And you probably will have to sign some sort of a covenant with them where if they go to war, you agree to go to war with them. Right? If they fight a war, you send soldiers to help them out, uh, and you don't help out their allies, that sort of thing. Not too different from the way that modern uh, diplomatic alliances work in that regard. But in general, you know, if you submit to them, 
without making them conquer you by, by force, they're going to treat you okay. However, if you do not submit to them, if you make them conquer you, it's going to be terrible. There will be bloodshed on a massive scale and no one will be safe. Because they won't just kill the combatants, they won't just kill the, the, the men in the battlefield, they'll go into the cities and they'll kill men, women, and children there. Anyone they capture who they don't kill will, will get sold into slavery to help cover the cost of the war. And it's even worse if you're in a city, if yeah, because it's more work to conquer a city. So uh, the, the general gist of this is, look, God says, submit to Babylon. That's my command to you. And they don't submit. We have to wonder if they had simply listened to the prophet Jeremiah. If they had submitted to Babylon like God told them to. We have to wonder if things might not have gone better. Maybe the temple wouldn't have been destroyed. Maybe Jerusalem wouldn't have been destroyed. Maybe... Maybe they wouldn't have even been carried off into exile. But because they resist, things go poorly. Now, none of the prophets in the Old Testament are very popular. But Jeremiah, especially, is, is just hated because his message is not popular. It's profoundly unpopular. It's just about the worst, most unpopular message that any prophet of the Old Testament is tasked with giving. I'm just going to cover a handful of chapters here that you're reading right now. So in chapter 23, <coughs> Jeremiah is talking about these false prophets, right? Lying prophets. It says, concerning the prophets in verse 9, My heart is broken within me. All my bones tremble. I am like a drunken man, like a strong man overcome by wine because of the Lord and his holy words. The land is full of adulterers because of the curse of the land. Because of the curse, the land lies parched, and the pastures in the wilderness are withered. The prophets follow an evil course and use their power unjustly. Both prophet and priest are godless. Even in my temple, I find their wickedness, declares the Lord. So you have this thing where he's calling out the, the prophets and saying, Look, even, even the prophets, even the priests in the temple are doing evil things. This is the depth of the state that Israel is in. And part of the problem that Jeremiah has is he's the only one who is actually faithfully proclaiming the word of the Lord. And no one listens to him. But they all go and listen to the other prophets and to the priests because what they are saying is more palatable to them. What those people are saying is more is easier for them to accept. A few weeks ago in one of my sermons, I said that we, we don't like to accept harsh truths. Well, here's a perfect example. Jeremiah is sharing the harsh truth from God, and the reality is any of them who had a familiarity with the Torah would be able to recognize the truth in Jeremiah's message. In all likelihood, many of them knew the truth and rejected it anyway in favor of the more pleasant lie. False prophets are much more popular than Jeremiah is. 
Now, I have to tell you, as a pastor, this is something I worry about sometimes. We all want popularity. We all want success. We all want to preach a message that people uh, really like and listen to. We want to be popular. But the temptation is that to, to preach something that you know will have broad appeal, that you know everyone will love and that you know will make you popular, you may have to preach something that might be false. We see this with uh, prosperity gospel preachers, right? People who just promise that if you're just faithful enough, uh, only good things will ever happen to you, even though the Bible says a whole lot of things about that that, that contradict what they say. And I could go on and on about this. <laughs> and I have in my sermons before. Um, but I have more ground to cover here. So I'll just I'll leave it at that. The popular message is not always the truthful message. Sometimes the truth of God is profoundly unpopular. And Jeremiah is a prime example. So that's chapter 23. In chapter 25, he does this thing where he declares that the king of Babylon is now God's servant. And he actually has this whole thing where he's predicting uh, the exile. But he literally tells them, and I'm trying to find the exact verse, and I may not be able to while I'm in the middle of this podcast. Sorry about that. But the general gist of chapter 25 is that the king of Babylon is God's servant. And think about that. The king of Babylon does not believe in God. Not this God. He doesn't worship. Oh, here we go. Chapter 29, chapter 25, verse 9. I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is not a, a willing servant of the God of Israel. But he's going to be used by God for his purposes. God can and does use people who do not believe in him, who do not uphold his law, who do not live according to the way he wants us to live. But God uses them nonetheless. We would do well to remember that. God uses people in the world to accomplish his will, whether they believe in him or not, whether they like him or not, whether they live a holy life or not. Now, this is not a justification, by the way, for uh, who we vote for, uh, I, I, you know, the, the kinds of people we elect to positions of power. It still matters that we, we focus on men and women of high character and integrity uh, and men and women who... who um, have a message that we believe in, that we think is good and right and true. But it means we should not despair when people in positions of power appear to be evil. It's no, worth noting that the, the early Christian church never cared who was in power or how they achieved power. All they cared about was how they used power because they recognized that God could and did work through people even if they did not believe in him. Now we skip ahead to chapter 28, where, oops, bumped the mic, 
in chapter 28, Jeremiah confronts this false prophet, Hananiah. Because this false prophet is uh, is telling people it's all going to be okay. God is going to come smite the Babylonians and restore Israel's fortune. He's going to bring our king back from Babylon. It's all going to be okay. Now, the background you need for this is the exile happens in two stages. So first, the Babylonians come and they defeat the people of Israel, they, they, well, the people of Judah, and they carry off the king and all of the nobility and all the really wealthy people, like the, the leaders, the, the elite of Jerusalem into exile. And they leave behind everybody else and they install a puppet king in their place. And the final exile happens 10 years later when that puppet king will turn against Babylon and attempt to ally himself with Egypt. So this portion, chapter 28, is taking place within that 10-year gap between when the, the king of Judah has been carried off into exile along with all the elites of the people and the rest of the people have been left behind. And this prophet is saying, it's okay, God will smite down Babylon, he'll return all of our people from Babylon in captivity and restore us to our glory. Uh, which is just a flat-out lie. And, and here's what's truly astounding about these false prophets. They had to know that they were just making things up. There's no way. There's no way they thought they were getting visions from God. So what's happening is they have deluded themselves into believing that what they are saying is true. And this is the danger of a false prophet. A false prophet believes that what they are saying is true. A false prophet has just enough knowledge of God's word to misuse it, but not enough to recognize how to separate truth from lie. That's Hananiah. That's the false prophet. And then in chapter 29, Jeremiah is going to write to the people who are already living in exile, right? So again, this is the elites. This is the kings. This is the king, the nobles. This is the priests of the temple, some of them at least. He tells them to settle down, to plant roots, to have children, to buy houses. He says, you're not coming home anytime soon. Again, this is contrary to what everyone else is saying. Everyone else is saying, nobody needs to worry. This will all be over soon enough. And Jeremiah says, no, it won't. Because you people still are not getting the point. And finally, in chapter 31, really interesting. In chapter 31, he talks about God making a new covenant with his people. Now, to my knowledge, that does not happen in the Old Testament. Now, I could be wrong, but I would interpret that as looking ahead to when the new covenant will be established through Jesus. That, that is the new covenant God will establish with his people. Because there's nowhere that I can think of in the Old Testament where, they, where a new covenant is made. There's some spots where you can infer maybe that he's sort of reaffirming the covenant he's already made, but I don't believe there's any place in the Old Testament 
where he makes a new covenant. So I think this is actually pointing ahead all the way to Jesus. Right here in Jeremiah, there's the promise that the new covenant will come. That's what you're reading in Jeremiah this week. Like I said, I, I, I'm fascinated by Jeremiah because, because he is a prophet preaching an unpopular message to people who are not receptive to it. And he really wrestles with it. He really wrestles with it. He gets angry at God about it. And so he's just a really interesting figure. He does not like what he's been called to do. But he feels compelled to do it. That's Jeremiah. Now, your New Testament readings are going to be getting to 1 Timothy. Which is a short letter. uh, But a really good one. And, um... The first things first, as I'm trying to separate these pages in my Bible. Um, <coughs> so Timothy's a pastor. And he worked with Paul a lot. He traveled with Paul a lot. Um, eventually, Paul will leave him. Paul leaves him in charge of the church in Ephesus. So we know Timothy's essentially the pastor of the church in Ephesus. We know Timothy's young. He's probably under the age of 30. Now, it's important to understand that in this letter, Paul is instructing Timothy with regard to social structures and leadership roles, which are all shaped by the world they live in. Okay? So elsewhere, Paul lays out the ideals of the kingdom of God, like Galatians 3.28, in which uh, slavery and hierarchy between men and women are done away with. But Paul also seems to recognize that we live in the world we live in, and at times we'll have to make concessions to it. So Timothy's in Ephesus. Ephesus is home to the Temple of Artemis, which is run by a priesthood of women. And it's entirely possible that part of Paul's instructions to Timothy here are a reaction against this sort of strange cult of women who effectively ran the, the city. Um, or at the very least, it maybe is an attempt to make the Ephesian church clearly distinct from other local religions by, by not allowing women to assume a leadership role within the Ephesian church so that no one confuses them with the pagan church. To make it just to draw that line really clearly, which is always an emphasis of Paul, to make sure that the people of God are clearly distinct. Um, in any case, we know that elsewhere... Paul commends women who are in leadership roles. Um, He very likely left a woman in charge of the church in Philippi. Uh, He'll refer to female apostles in other letters. He mentions uh, Priscilla, his co-worker, which would mean his equal, in the good work of the gospel. Uh, Phoebe is a deacon near the city of Corinth. Junia was an apostle, which means she was equal in rank to Paul. Uh, Euodia and Syntyche are uh, evidently leaders of some importance in Philippi, and, and that doesn't need to mention Lydia, who is the woman who may well have been the leader of the Philippian church. And if she wasn't in charge of the whole church, she was definitely a hugely influential figure in that church. Paul thought very highly of her. We know she was a very wealthy businesswoman, so she certainly was a source of a lot of funding for that church and for Paul's ministry. So we can't really use these texts in First Timothy as this like proof text to subordinate women Uh, And instead of doing that, really, we should be trying to figure out just what particular problems Paul was trying to deal with. Because the whole body of Paul's work actually suggests that he frequently placed women 
in leadership roles. And so pulling this one small passage out of context and then using it to subjugate women is really just lazy theology. That's, that's what it is. Um, and, and again, just to look at some of the stuff here, right? The idea that the man was the head of the household, that's not unique to Christianity. Um, at, the, at, at that time, it is, it is the universal cultural assumption. Everyone assumes that this is true. So when Paul talks about these familial household roles, he's actually pushing against some social boundaries here. Uh, because he's taking what everyone already assumes to be true, and he's, he's altering them a bit. And, um, in fact, if I can just grab that right here. And, and part of that is, you know, he, he talks about, you know, let them be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. Um, let them be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Um. about keeping children submissive, but he also talks about uh, being sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not violent, not quarrelsome. Um, these are not, these are not the actual virtues that society embraced at the time of men. No one thought a man who would not be violent was was somehow better than a man who would. The entire ancient world was built on the premise that might makes right, and that a man had complete freedom to do what he wanted with his own household. A man in, in the Roman Empire literally held the power of life and death over his wives and children. He could kill them if he wanted to. Perfectly legal. Uh, so Paul is pushing back. He's, he's acknowledging these cultural assumptions that the man is the head of the household and saying, but yeah, you know, if you're going to be that... You have some responsibilities here. You have to be Christ-like, and that means you have to be gentle. But there's another little piece in here that is really radical, and people miss it all the time. In 1 Timothy 2.11, he says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, a lot has been made over this verse. And maybe some of you women listening get, are really, get really mad. <laughs> when you hear it. Here's the thing. In Paul's world, this Greco-Roman world of the first century, um, women were not allowed to be educated. You did not teach a woman to read. You did not send a woman to school. Women were not really actually considered fully human, by the Greeks, at least. Greek philosophy held that women were like a, a lesser version of humanity. So first off, when Paul says, let a woman learn, this is profoundly radical. No one else in his day and age is letting women learn. And Paul says, no, no, no. 
You let them learn. And I would point out, um, well, he actually says it's learn. Um, the word, the word that he uses there is the root word for disciple. So he's effectively saying, let women be disciples. Let them learn. And then he goes on and says, with all submissiveness. Now, there may be some cultural assumptions going on there. There may be um, some sensitivity to how they are perceived by the rest of the world. But I suspect, actually, Paul would have demanded that men learn in submissiveness, too, until they reach a point where they uh, have learned enough to begin teaching. So we have this radical thing where Paul tells Timothy, let the women learn. Let them learn. Let them be disciples. And I've been pushing back against sort of the cultural ideas of what men and women were supposed to do in the household a little bit. And then we have all these other texts throughout the New Testament where Paul clearly puts women in positions of authority and in positions where they would have had authority over men. So what we have to do is assume that these verses here in 1 Timothy where he tells him not to do that, not to put women in authority over men, that there is something specific about Timothy's context in Ephesians that makes that necessary. Because for the rest of the New Testament, really, he doesn't do that. He actually mentions women in leadership. So we know that Paul put women in leadership roles. This is the problem that happens when you pull small verses of these letters out of context and then try and apply them to things that they don't necessarily apply to. It doesn't work. You can't interpret it that way. These bits about right not, not permitting a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man very clearly were not actually Paul's instruction for all people in all times and all places because he mentions women who would have had authority to teach men. And obviously he's encouraging Timothy to let the women learn. So he's pushing the boundaries. Because Paul knows that in God's kingdom, men and women are equal. But Paul also accepts that we live in a broken world and sometimes we have to make concessions to that world, even as we push those boundaries. That's fun. That's First Timothy for today. And friends, I will leave you with that and I will see you all on Sunday.